Time keeps on leaving and we keep on moving. When do we pass on our wisdom to the youth? My veteran story, lost ours discussions, fireside chats with the bourbon or two. It's time to hear the story by military veterans. Get yourself ready. It's the Lost Arts Podcast. The Lost Arts with Andrew Cox. Hello, hello. How are we doing, friends? And welcome back to the podcast that gives a voice to our veterans, The Lost Arts with Andrew Cox. I'm your host, Andrew Cox, and I am thrilled with our guest for this week. He is one of the best Marines I've had the pleasure of serving with, a highly motivated individual that rose to the rank of SAR Major. We will discuss his career and have him give us words of wisdom based on the years of service to our nation. We will also discuss the ever-changing world where things are getting lost and not passed down to that next generation, those lost arts that could be beneficial for those young, motivated servicemen and women answering the call of our great nation. Last but not least, we will answer some questions from our viewers and try to give words of wisdom to help them in their journey in the military. I hope you're ready for some great sea stories and lessons learned from one of the Marine Corps' finest sergeant majors to ever serve. Now, go grab that bourbon, light a cigar, and sit back in your favorite chair as we dive headfirst into the Lost Art podcast appropriately titled Sergeant Major Mafia. So this brings us to the first segment, My Veteran Story. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing our guests for the first episode, Bill Oldenburg, Sergeant Major Retired. Bill, Bill, how you doing? I'm doing well, my friend. I appreciate the opportunity to join you in this podcast. Absolutely. I'm I'm super thrilled that you're here with me uh, and, and going to tell your story because I'm excited to hear all about it. Well, it's uh, kind of interesting. I know that when I tell them, my kids usually run away because they get tired of hearing them. So I appreciate the opportunity for a new audience. Absolutely. Yes. And and I'm sure everyone that's listening is going to be excited to hear it as well, because a lot of them, it'll be their first time. A lot of these stories, I'm sure, is going to be my first time. So we'll get some good laughs out of it, at least. Absolutely. Awesome. So why don't we start? Like, what have you been up to uh, since you retired? What have you had going on? Well, it's kind of a bunch of things. So I, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I did 30 years, came in in uh, 1986, retired in 2016. Um, After that, once I retired, I went into a a government contracting job for about 18 months. And then I came to work for MCCS here at Camp Lejeune. And I've been here uh, since 2018. Very nice. That's that's awesome. Um, and then uh, let's let's get into when you decided to join the military. Like, what was it that provoked you and, and gave you that inspiration to join the military and specifically the Marine Corps? Well, I tell you, I was uh, one of the recruiters' uh, stereotypical dreams uh, when I went in. I was uh, grew up in upstate New York. I went to the recruiter's office. Uh, I was a stout, young, one hundred and thirty-five pound. Um, 17 year old man, um, that thought he was the toughest guy in the world went into the uh, recruiter's office. And, uh, the first thing that they said, they looked at me and they're like, you'll never make it, which is words, um, just to motivate a person to say, this is what I'm going to do. Very nice. That, that's, that's a lot of story, people's stories when they come in that the recruiter is not as nice as, uh, some of the other, uh, services. And, uh, it kind of just motivates you to go ahead and join. Well, it does. Cause it seemed like the other services, um, 
as I've gotten older, I've learned to, you know, truly appreciate the differences. But the other ones were looking for ways to entice me. Uh, the Marine recruiter almost seemed bored um, that they, <laughs> they didn't want to spend time with me uh, just to prove, had to prove yourself that you're worthy, ready to serve. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, recruiter uh, provoked you into joining at that point. So you went to boot camp. Did you go to Paris Island? So I did, Dad. So I grew up in upstate New York. So everything, I'm sure it's still the same way nowadays, but uh, everybody east of the Mississippi went to Paris Island. Everybody west of the Mississippi went to San Diego. So I went to Paris Island on October 2nd, 1986, and I was fortunate enough to uh, be in 1st Battalion B Company, 2003. I was also uh, first, first Battalion uh, Bravo Company as well. Uh, oh, what? Much later, 1999, but, uh, and it was on the West Coast. So oh, okay. I know it was Hollywood and all, but still, you know, Bravo Company. But it's amazing, you know, we started talking the difference in, you know, I used to think, you know, just humping out in Paris Island was tough. And as we get into the career later on, when I became a first sergeant and I was out with uh, 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines in Camp Horno, and everything is uphill and all those mountains, I got a greater appreciation uh, for the Marines who went through San Diego. Yeah, I'd say it's a little different. I've only been on Paris Island one time, uh, and I'm got to say I'm glad I didn't end up there. Uh, but they say the sand fleas are horrible. Uh, I don't ever want to find out. It's just amazing because I've gone back there in my government contracting job. I was down there every other week working with uh, the wounded, ill, and injured service members transitioning out, and I was able to uh, service some of the um, – Marines that are in Paris Island or at the air station at Beaufort. And it's amazing going back there, looking around, because in my mind, walking around Paris Island, I thought this thing was thousands and thousands of square miles. When you get on there, um, all they're doing is just running you in circles so many different ways. It's not as big as I remember it. That's very true. It is kind of small. Uh, yeah. So uh, at boot camp, what is it, the the things that you remember the most? It, it's funny because the one thing that really kind of stuck out to me is um, the smell. So back then, I remember I got down there in October, so it was starting to get, you know, a little bit colder and um, it was getting darker earlier. So it just seemed like uh, all the steam pipes that were running around uh, Paris Island were always like letting off steam. And then there was like this musty, like swampy kind of smell right. um, that just kind of stuck out at me. Um, and always worry about the weird fly of a drone instructor going to catch it somewhere. So always being on alert level 10. Absolutely. Uh, and then I, so did you end up uh, three drill instructors or how many did you have in your platoon? So we ended up having uh, three for the most part. And then uh, from second and third phase, we ended up getting a fourth, which, you know, looking back on it now, I believe it was a, um, uh, a young sergeant that just graduated DI school. So he joined a platoon. Right. Um, towards the end just to kind of get his training. But uh, so typically it was uh, three, the fourth during the second half. And I actually ended up running into all of my drill instructors um, throughout my career, which when we get to those different stages, I'll kind of um, step into that a little bit more. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. So um, in, in boot camp, I, I have, I, you know, both being drill instructors, you look back and a lot of it was uh, you taught like core values, honor, courage, commitment. Um, now, when you were coming through, uh, was there a lot of that being taught or was it something different at that point? So I don't, I don't I mean, we always talked about the core values, honor, courage and commitment. Don't necessarily remember them being taught to you. Just um, 
through example and how to live by them. Um, it was a lot of, I mean, everything was a teachable moment and it seemed like it was almost understood and expected um, on why those core values are so important to you. It's, it's different. I mean, I look back now and I see, you know, how they have um, teachable moments or at the end it's a drill instructor time and you're sitting on your foot lockers and talking through some things. I don't remember it so much back then other than um, just getting strong and uh, <laughs> making sure that you don't step out of line. All right. Absolutely. Um, and then, so you, you spent your time there, you, nothing happened. You didn't get held back or hurt or anything. No, I didn't, uh, actually, actually did very well. I, um, on the, uh, third day of training, so not through forming, but third day of training, I ended up, um, we had a, a company competition and, uh, I was, uh, one of the last legs, uh, climbing up, uh, the rope, uh, went exceedingly fast, got up to the top. Um, and I, I just remember this, uh, you know, I got up to the top, I slapped the top of the pole, and I was like, between uh, uh, Recruit Oldenburg, 2003 topside. My senior looks at me, and he's like, you know, are you mine? And I was like, yes, sir. I get down, and he made me the guide. Um, oh, no kidding. Because uh, the guide that was there uh, that we had initially for that first through forming in the first two days um, had struggled when he was getting through that uh, confidence course. So I got the uh, the guide on. Kept it, um, ended up graduating as a guide. It went back and forth. Looking back on it now, I know it was a game. Right. Um, but, uh, I was able to, uh, keep it for about 90% of the time and, uh, ended up, uh, walking across the grinder graduation day as the guide. That's awesome. Now, did you get a uh, meritorious promotion out of that as well? So I went down as a PFC. Um, okay. And, uh, so they weren't, uh, I wasn't going to get Lance Corporal. Yeah, that makes sense. That that happens quite a quite a bit. I know in the band we are automatic PFCs, um, so I, I can understand that. I got mine through. Uh, I was so motivated. Uh, ended up having a couple buddies. They joined with me, so I got them through recruited assistance points. And oh, nice. I went okay. down as a PFC. So being already guaranteed, they uh, and they had. It's funny. I remember having this conversation too, where you know my senior was talking to me. He's like, you know. We're, you're already guaranteed a promotion. We could still give you meritorious promotion, which would look good in your record, but you really, you would just take it away from somebody else. So, uh, oh, right. Yeah. Just stayed already guaranteed. Yeah. That's awesome. Always looking out for somebody else. I, that's what I like about you. I didn't know it at the time, but I, it definitely set the trend, uh, kind of moving forward because it really, it, it honestly was never really about me. I appreciated the opportunity of being a guy. I didn't know what it was. Um, uh, but then when you got, put in that position where you you're looking after others and you're taking care of others. Um, it's, it's, it's really a rewarding feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And that's great that you uh, found that that early in your career. Not, not everybody gets that, you know, uh, one in depending on how many is in your platoon, one in 90 or whatever the case may be, uh, really get that opportunity. I think, uh, I think we started, it was 80 or 81 and we ended up uh, graduating 65 originals. Uh, we ended up getting pick up some drops from, um, MRP or PCP, but um, out of 80, we graduated 65 originals. Wow, that's amazing. All right, so uh, so you graduate boot camp, and then uh, at that point, you're off to your uh, uh, occupational uh, school. Is that correct? Correct. So uh, I ended up uh, getting an aviation guaranteed contract, um, which, again, another looking back on now makes me laugh. Um, when I went into the Marine Corps, I, all I thought were Marines were were basically infantrymen. Um, mm -hmm. The rifle, the the bayonet, K-bar, um, cami paint, and all that stuff. Well, my right. recruiter um, was actually a marine aviation electrician. 
So he was talking to me about going in to aviation. And I was like, no, I don't want to go in the Air Force. I want to go in the Marine Corps. And then he explained to me, you know, that the Marines have aviation and all that. And I was like, okay, great. Sounded like something right up my alley. So I ended up uh, taking an aviation contract and then went to uh, Millington, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis for A school. Very nice. And then uh, what specifically was your job? So I started out um, as a uh, aviation electrician. Um, back then, uh, I ended up having some challenges getting through that school. So I ended up getting reclassified into um, helicopters as a flight line mechanic. So I uh, kind of sat around. They called it the Dirty 30. So when you get uh, when you get reclassified out of one school into another, as long as they felt that um, you were still worthy, um, you went over to what they called the Dirty 30, which was the holding tank. Well, I ended up being the uh, the senior Marine because I got uh, promoted to Lance Corporal um, after recruit training through my recruiter, right. through recruiting points. And uh so as the senior Marine, I uh, really kind of got into that. So for me, it wasn't a dirty 30, turned into a nasty 90. I spent three months in the holding tank. Um, oh, wow. And a lot of it was because they, they, I don't think they wanted me to get classed up because it was really, the, the dirty 30 was running well. Right, yeah. <laughs> Another so, opportunity for leadership. I'm telling you, it, uh, it all kind of fell into place. And then as a result of that, because normally you don't really have a choice where you're getting reclassified. Right. Um, and uh, because I was doing so well, and uh, I believe my leaders um, appreciated that, they actually asked me, you know, what did I want? And uh, a buddy of mine was getting 53s, uh, CH-53s, Alpha Deltas. So right. that's what I told him I wanted. So we ended up waiting. Um, that's why it was 90 days. I could have classed up on 60 days in a different aircraft, but I ended up waiting um, for CH-53s. Very nice. So I went through the uh, flight line course uh, that they called it, uh, BHC, basic helicopter course, and then um, ended up getting out of there in September of 1987. 1987. Okay. And then after you did that, okay, you finished the schoolhouse, and then where did you go off to then? So my first duty station, uh, they asked, uh, you know, they, you did get a chance of East Coast, West Coast, overseas. I grew up in New York, so I wanted to go see something other than the East Coast. So I put California, ended up going to Tustin. Uh, up in Orange County. Um, so that was kind of uh, where I was going. So I got graduated in September, had my girlfriend, who's now my wife. Um, nice. She was in New York, um, asked her if she wanted to drive out to California with me. And uh, we were actually engaged. And uh, so she flew into Memphis and then we drove across country um, out to uh, Irvine, California. That is awesome. Uh, I will I will tell you because this, this came up in the, uh, one of the other podcasts. But uh, I remember driving from Virginia Beach, because that's where our schoolhouse is, all the way to California, and we only had a map. And we talk about in the podcast, a lost arts. Man, that is a lost art of looking at a map and trying to find your way. It's so funny. We were, uh, I was in a uh, HR training on Monday. And we're, it's a generations class, kind of talking about the different generations and what are some of the skill sets. And that was one of the ones that I brought up, the, the lost art of having a Rand McNally um, <laughs> <laughs> map atlas my father was a truck driver so i had the trucker version you know that was as thick as an encyclopedia right um with me um to help navigate across the country because there wasn't gps that's that's true yeah we didn't have that cell phones gps all that stuff it's it's wild how things have changed so, right, yeah, so, yeah i'm sorry uh so you get to california now you're with your new unit there so uh, it's funny as soon as i checked in is uh, kind of one of those things where 
you know, I go in and I get a check in. They bring me in to see the maintenance chief, who's a master gunnery sergeant. Uh, right. So I'm like all excited. I'm in my alphas and I go in and the uh, maintenance chief, the master guns is like, he's like, hey, warrior, um, you know, great to have you look good, blah, blah, blah. He's checking out my uniform. He's like, are you ready to go to Okinawa with us? And I'm like, well, when we go, master gunnery sergeant? He's like, well, we're going um, in June. And I, I tell him, I was like, well, I, I can't mess guns, uh, or mess any. I was, I'm getting married in July. Um, <laughs> and it's so funny. And it's just like, uh, no, the world doesn't work that way, son. You're, uh, you're coming with us. So, uh, I was like freaked out because I'm like, oh my God, like I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to get married now. The guy said we're going to be gone. So I remember going back to the hotel where my, uh, my girlfriend, my wife was at and I told her we couldn't get married. And, uh, cause I'll be overseas and, you know, that was a whole bunch of drama. And then when I got back the next day, the gunny kind of explained things and we had other plans, but it was, I just remember that was so funny. He's like, nope, doesn't work that way, partner. Um, so that's that learning curve. <laughs> got it very quickly. <laughs> oh man. So, okay. Uh, when did you actually get married? Did you get married before you went on uh, deployment or? Uh, so yeah, what we did is, uh, so. This was the uh, end of September of 87. Um, she stayed out there with me. It was supposed to be a week. Um, every time I was taken to the airport, she gave me the big puppy dog eyes. So I think she ended up staying three weeks. We extended her trip. Um, I was just running out of money for hotels. Right. And, uh, so she ended up flying back, um, to New York in the middle of October. And then we had it set when I was coming home for Christmas leave in December. Um, we had it set up with the church to go ahead and get married. Uh, on December 6th while I was home on Christmas leave. Very nice. So you got, got married and uh, I'm assuming she came out with you immediately or? No, so she, she, uh, we got married, but then she stayed in New York. I went back out, stayed in the barracks because we were going over to Okinawa. Um, okay. For the UDP. And then, um, while I was gone, we were able to get signed up for the base housing, uh, over at El Toro. Okay. And, uh, so it was all set up. So we got home. We left in June of 80, uh, June of 88 came home in, uh, the end of December of 88. And, uh, she came out there January, like the end of the first week in January. And we moved into our first apartment together over in El Toro. Very cool. That's awesome. And and you guys been together ever since we have. So, uh, you know, she's still, you know, my best friend, I'm still in love with my wife. Fortunately, she still uh, tolerates me. And uh, we started dating July 2nd of 1985. And, uh, been together ever since. Absolutely. And again, uh, you look around and that's another lost art. You don't see as many people staying together that long. And, no, especially uh, through the deployments. And, both of you. Correct. Especially through the deployments and just the stressors. Um, she found uh, ways to keep me um, focused and uh, keep, allow me to be successful as a Marine. Because, you know, as we'll get into this, you'll see that there's a lot of self-sacrifices you have to make in order to maintain your relevance to the organization. She understood that and she knew it was a partnership. Um, and I really owe, you hear the stories of my, owe my success to the people. I truly owe my success to my wife. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's the way you should look at it. And, you know, I, I think of the same thing whenever I look at my wife and, and as much stuff that she's put up with and my craziness and all that stuff. I, I mean, she's amazing to be able to do that. And I'm sure your wife is exactly the same. Amazing, patient and uh, tolerant, I guess. So the yeah, Big words <laughs> absolutely. All right. So you, you go to Okinawa, Okinawa on your first UDP. What, how, what was that like? So that was, uh, it was really cool. Eye opening, you know, never, uh, my first flight, um, in an airplane was when I went to boot camp. So there was, wasn't a whole lot of experience 
Um, out of that, we drove home um, after that and then drove to California. So then my second flight was military transportation. Uh, it was a C-141 um, oh, wow. flying from El Toro over to uh, Kadena in Okinawa. So that, you know, on the uh, the cargo netting seats, um, like a, I want to say there was four or five different stops, like our own little island hopping campaign, um, stopping in Hawaii, stopping in Guam, um, uh, one other small island stop, and then over into uh, Okinawa. Did you get any time to uh, go out and uh, visit any of those places and those stops? Uh, so just a little bit of time while they were fueling. Um, so just a few hours. Uh, I just remember going on Guam. Or uh, no, it wasn't Guam. It was Wake Island. Uh, we did stop at Wake. And then they had the uh, the little memorial to Major Devereaux oh, yeah. and the Marines that uh, defended uh, Wake Island. I remember that. Got a bunch of pictures. Um, so that was uh, pretty memorable as well. Awesome. Okay, so you're in Okinawa on Kadena, is that correct? So we flew into Kadena, but uh, we were actually on Futema, okay. which is the uh, Marine Aviation Base, uh, about 30 minutes, 30, 35 minutes south of Kadena. Um, so once we're there on uh, Futema, the normal rotation is you're either going to do um, Team Spirit over in Korea, or you're going to go down to the Philippines. I was fortunate enough um, to get part of the first group that went down to um, QB Point down in the Philippines, and I spent almost four months out of the six-month deployment overseas down in the Philippines. No kidding. Yeah, That's it was it was awesome. great. Yeah, did it, you uh, now while you were there, you got out and got to see the sights a little bit? Oh yeah, well, so we definitely you know got liberty. Um, your regular routine. Uh, we end up you work every day while you're down there, but you know you'd go in Saturday or Sunday, maybe watch the airplanes for a few hours. wasn't a, a big heavy flight schedule, but there was always something going on, unless uh, there really wasn't. And then you might get a whole full day, day and a half. Uh, but I remember uh, it was the first time I actually got myself in trouble was uh, going down there. And uh, so especially back then when I came in, um, and it definitely while you're overseas, the drinking age was 18 as long as you're an active duty service member with your green ID card. Right. So no matter where, uh, whatever the local laws were, um, you were able to drink. So. Didn't really have too many troubles in the States. And then when my first time when I got over to the Philippines, it was definitely craziness. Um, well, the expectation or the curfew was making sure that you're back um, in the uh, QB Point camp uh, by midnight. So I was on my way back, I want to say about 11 o'clock, 11.15 or 2300, 2315, right. working my way back to the gate. Um, but what was happening was uh, a bunch of the pilots and some of the staff and COs were coming out because they were doing some night flights and they saw me and they're like, Hey, where are you going? I'm like, I'm heading back. And they're like, Oh, come on. One more beer, one beer. Oh, um, no. <laughs> which, oh yeah. The, the dreaded one beer story. And now, uh, so I ended up, um, missing the curfew. And I, I think I ended up getting back, uh, like zero two. Um, oh, so now, you know, and everything, everybody had duty logs and all that stuff. So I know I'm in trouble. I get to work the next day and, uh, you know, I had to go see the master gunny and, uh, it was kind of like the, the expectation. If you, if you mess up, you're going to have on base restriction, um, for a period of three days. Okay. And, uh, so it was all, it was all informal. It wasn't NJP. It wasn't page 11, but that's, that was the rules. Um, right. and you just adhered to the rules. And I, I got to tell you, even now 
Um, I tell people at the time, I'm actually pretty thankful that I had that because up until that point, we were going out every night and my liver needed a break. Um, <laughs> so that three-day uh, on-base restriction um, was definitely well needed and it gave me a chance to um, kind of just focus on drinking water instead of uh, San Miguel. Yeah, absolutely. I will tell you, I've uh, spent a, a little bit of time with uh, some of the air wingers and I do know they know how to party. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, they've uh they've taken us around. We've gone on uh doing gigs or whatever for them and and they flew us in and different things like that and of course they take us under their wing and uh show us a good time. We'll say that, but uh they know how to party. They sure do. All right. So uh so in Okinawa, is there anything else uh uh while you were there that is kind of um really opened your eyes or something that you want to impart on anybody else uh, that may be listening? Well, for the um, for the end of that, I was back in Okinawa 12 months after that, because uh, back then it was typically uh, six months overseas, 12 months back home. So I had two back-to-back UDPs. Right. That first one, I went over as a Lance Corporal. Um, so really not a whole lot of eye-opening things, especially back then. You, you do what you're told, right. you know, do the best you can to learn from those uh, seasoned NCOs and the staff NCOs um, and just absorb as much as you can. It's that second time I went back over there, really kind of opened my eyes. I was the night crew um, NCOIC as a corporal, which was huge. And then being able to see a little bit more of how the organization worked and how you played a critical role. Um, that was definitely something that was more impactful. Um, first time I was just doing what I needed to do and try to stay out as much trouble as I could. Right. Yeah. And as an NCO, that's that's a big thing in the Marine Corps. That's one of uh, one of the things and we push our leadership down as, as to the lowest level as possible. Uh, and being that NCO is one of the most important roles that we have uh, in the Marine Corps. And uh, you were getting your fill of it uh, early as a corporal doing it, um, which is which is fantastic. Right. And it was um, when I. After we came back home and my wife was there, I ended up another funny story. Back then, um, my wife was um, not really familiar with how the military worked and our uniforms and all that. Well, I was back home, I think it was April of um, 89. Yeah, um, April of 89 is when I got promoted to corporal. Okay. So about four months after we got back home. And at the time, my wife and I only had one car. And I didn't know I was getting promoted that day. I, you know, like nowadays, you get to see everything on MOL. Right. Um, and, uh, but back then it was either somebody working up an S1 that came out with the cutting score list, or then you found out that day there was really no way of knowing you're getting promoted. Well, back then all I was always wearing was either coveralls or a flight suit. Right. And uh, you, you don't get promoted in anything other than camis. Right. So I remember, um, that morning my gunny goes to me. He's like, all right, um, Hey, make sure you have a set of camis here. Uh, you're getting promoted to corporal, um, at this afternoon's formation. And I was like, one, super excited. Like I didn't realize I was getting promoted. It was still kind of quick, you know, cause at that time I was only in for, you know, just a couple of years. Um, right. most of the guys weren't picking up corporal until a little over four years. Um, so I was doing really well. And, uh, but I called my wife and I was, I was like, Hey, I need you to bring me over a set of camis. Well, the camis that I had, um, they were washed, but you know, they weren't pressed. And, uh, oh, right. she was, she was trying to do a great job of making sure that I looked presentable, but she's never pressed any of my camis. <laughs> so what she did, um, and we, we laugh about this to the day, which is why she never does uh, any of the ironing 
was uh, the only example she had was one of my Charlie shirts that was hanging up in the closet <laughs> with the creases. Right. Um, so three creases down the back, one down each front. Um, and she did a beautiful job of putting all those creases in my camis. That was and very so nice of her. Oh, my God. I do remember she pulls up into the flight line parking lot. Um, I go over and I grab it. And I'm looking. And now I'm like, like freaking out. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, there's no way I can wear this. Um, over there to get promoted, the sergeant major would have just teared my head off. And um, so I'm, I'm like freaking out. She's upset because, you know, she did. She thought she was doing really good. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, so I I remember going in and talking to my gunny and I told him, I'm like, gunny, I can't get promoted. Today. You know, and he's like, what are you talking about? And I showed it to him and he's like, all right, you're getting promoted in a flight suit. And uh, so it was kind of one of those things where even though at the time we never did the promotions in uh, anything other than Cammy's, um, the gunny uh, ended up letting me get promoted in that. Yeah, he, he was looking out for you for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I think he was looking out for himself, too, because I think the Sergeant Major would have had him, too, if I well, showed yeah, up. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was uh, – so ever since then, um, you know, I've always uh, taken on the, the role of – and I enjoy ironing, especially back then. It was always, you know, a, a nightly routine of ironing out your camis and spit shining your boots. Um, <laughs> it was a, It was literally a 35 to – our um, kind of routine each night. Absolutely, and, uh, it was. I, I loved it and enjoyed it, and I would do that. And at the same time, I'd press out whatever clothes she needed or for the kids. Yeah, I kind of did the same type of thing. I, I will say for for our younger listeners, if if they're out there listening, um, you have no idea how much time and effort went into our uniforms, even camis with the spit shining of the boots, the pressing them out. You put starch all over your camis, and they're so heavily starched that they could stand up by themselves. Yep. So that, I mean, that was the norm back then. It was like the stay flow. We'd get it, you know, by the, by the gallon. Um, <laughs> so that you could soak your camis in it and then, you know, you hang them up and they would literally, you know, like you just mentioned, they, they could stand up on their own if you kind of push the, uh, the legs together. Hey, that's right. I remember having, uh, especially at my MOS school, but I remember having boot shining parties. So you go down into the common area and everyone's shining boots and watching a show or whatever. And that's kind of what you did in the evening. Uh, yep. That and then spraying the starch, pressing the camis out, all that type of stuff. All right. All right. So um, let's see. You're the, you, so you did two uh, UDPs to Okinawa. Yep. Um, so that was, uh, got, I went to that next one in um, January of 1990. And then we came home in uh, July of 1990. Um, like I said, great opportunity for me. I was now the NCO, the NCIC of night crew. Um, okay. there was probably 14 or 15 of us on nights. Um, it was me and another corporal and then the rest were Lance corporals and PFCs. And, uh, that was really, uh, like a defining moment for me to understand the responsibility, you know, take on certain tasks and take on implied tasks. You know, yeah, <clears throat> back then we used the phrase commander's intent. You know, so whatever the gunny's intent was or even the CO's intent, um, he's like, you knew in the back of your head, hey, this is what the gunny might want. So outside of direct orders, um, you just made it happen. Absolutely. Yeah, that's very vital for uh, mission accomplishment and making sure things get done. Just knowing what your leaders expect and what they need uh, as you uh, move forward. That's uh, right. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So I'll say, and then um, as we're, the one thing that I didn't mention in between those two uh, deployments, because it was always, it was this normal rotation of three years in a duty station. I think it's that way now. Right. They might be trying to homestead a little bit more, but 
you know, you kind of 18 months into your duties, into your assignment, you're kind of looking at that next step. Um, well, right. I wanted to go to the presidential helicopter squad. It's called HMX one in Quantico, Virginia. So it was a lengthy process back then. Well, I started, um, and then, uh, initially when I was trying to go through the qualifying process, um, it was determined that I had, um, I was unworthy as a candidate because I had probably about $1,800 worth of credit card debt at the time, which nowadays doesn't seem like anything, but, you know, back then, you know, as a, my first, um, two years or so, I was making less than a thousand dollars a month, um, base pay. I think I, once I picked up corporal, I made like a thousand ten per month. So, you know, to have almost $1,800 in credit card debt was such a huge thing. Well, HMX, the screeners, they said that I was uh, not qualified. So then I, you know, I focused for that next 18 months, um, really not buying anything and just, you know, paying off those credit cards so that I can um, be qualified. And that was kind of a life's lesson where I didn't really understand financial um, maturity and financial planning and uh, just fiscal conservancy as a young Marine, but that taught it, taught it to me pretty quick when you realize swiping that card has long-term consequences. Oh, and that absolutely. was kind of like a defining moment. Unfortunately, it wasn't that big of a, a credit card debt. I look back now and I'm like, huh, um, you know, not, it was nothing, but, um, it was such a big deal. Yeah. They, uh, it's, it's amazing the, the amount of debt that, uh, uh, individuals collect nowadays. I, and you look, you look at it and you're like, how do you even survive? Uh, it just it would just scare Marines. me. It would stress me out. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And these young Marines, you know, I, uh, I kind of I feel sorry for them at times. And you look at the the way the world is, the way the world is, and when you look at how easily you can get in debt and those types of things. Where back then it wasn't as easy, uh, but I mean you could still do it. Uh, right. But man, these guys nowadays, I think anybody can get a loan. Uh, I could be wrong on that. I don't, I don't know for sure, but <laughs> well, I it think seems right. like it and after the, talking to some of the young guys. I, I, you know, I believe you're right. And then a lot of problems. And again, I've been retired for a few years, but I remember having many conversations about, um, you know, people getting into loans because they're, they're focused on getting the loan to be able to purchase the thing and not looking at the terms of the loan. And then you truly do see these astronomical interest rates. Um, you see, um, fees associated with getting the loan, you know, charging a thousand dollars to create the loan, which is, you know, these are ridiculous things in my mind. Um, but they're actually getting lumped into the cost of these, uh, expenses, these uh, young service members and some older service members are getting into because they're just not reading the fine print. Absolutely. Um, okay. So, uh, you've been putting in for HMX one, uh, they told, you, no, you worked on your debt. Uh, I'm assuming you got that under control and eventually was selected to go. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So I was, I uh, got the word while I was overseas. Um, cause we really worked hard. My wife and I, you know, getting that $1,800, like completely paid off. I think we did it in about seven months. Um, yeah, that's good. which especially back then, uh, when I used to smoke, um, I would <laughs> give up cigarettes. Um, I wouldn't buy beer. Like there, there was no, there was no outside, um, entertainment stuff. It was just pay that stuff off. Um, got the word while we were overseas that I was accepted and that we were going to be going in September of 1990 over to uh, Quantico to join HMX one. Well, at the same time when we were in Okinawa, we knew we were coming back and transitioning from the CH 53 alpha Delta models, 
which I grew up on to the CH-53 Echo models, which were just getting um, introduced into the fleet. Okay. So we started that transition from, uh, came home in July, did the transition from July, August, and then into September. And then um, my wife and I packed up our uh, rider moving truck and uh, moved ourselves from Irvine, California, over to Quantico, Virginia. Yeah, and I'm assuming at that point you're still using the good old-fashioned maps. Oh, yeah, there was, uh, it was all maps, and uh, it was um, you know many conversations with my father because he, he'd be able to tell me, hey, just make sure when you get into Oklahoma, you know, watch out for this intersection. My father just had one of these uh, photogenic memories where he could tell you just about any road, major road or minor road, throughout the United States um, on there's, you know, if you go into this town, about a halfway down, there's going to be the one restaurant on the left hand side. You're going to like that. And um, it's just amazing. He would tell you all these ways to like avoid traffic. Um, so he was like my real life traffic advisor. Um, oh, yeah. that, like when we got into bigger cities on how to do the bypasses and all that. It was a, uh, it was really cool, but he got me set up. I'd have all my notes. Um, Susan would be the navigator. Um, yep. And then away we went. Very nice. All right, so you show up. You show up now to HMX One. So what was that like? So this is a presidential uh, type of thing uh, where you're you're flying the president around in the in in HMX One. Well, you're not flying him, but the helicopter is, right? Correct. Yeah. So HMX was definitely one of those eye-opening experiences for me because again, there's there's all the uh, the prestige. You know, they're definitely, it's a selection process. It's a hard selection process to get in. Um, and not just your finance. You have to be, um, just a really super squared away Marine because, you know, it's a, it's, it's a super responsibility, um, that's put upon you to be responsible for the safety of flying, not just the president and the vice president. Um, but you're also flying, uh, senior military members, the, uh, a lot of the uh, cabinet secretaries, um, some, uh, elected officials. Um, congressmen, senators, um, you're responsible for, you know, all that. It's a huge responsibility, but very rewarding. And, and you were being a mechanic, right? You, you were Correct. fixing so the after, aircraft or, or maintaining the aircraft, uh, to make sure that it was, uh, able to operate and do what it needed to do. Correct. So my primary MOS is what they refer to as a flight line mechanic, which is engines and rotor systems. So all the, uh, the transmissions, the drivetrains, and then your, um, your engines. So that was my areas of expertise. And then you had your hydraulics men, um, that worked on all the hydraulics and the pumps. And then you had your sheet metal workers, air framers, um, which did all the structural work. And then you had your, um, avionics or your electricians, um, that worked on all the electronic components. So, Everybody had their own specialty, uh, but then you started spending um, more time helping others, which gave you a better understanding of how the old, the entire helicopter worked. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and now, did you fly around at any point in time with that? So that was my transition. When I was out in California before I went to HMX, I got on what they called skins, which is aircrew skins, um, which is flight orders. Um, right. So as a first mechanic, um, you'd go out there, you'd fly. I wasn't the crew chief at the time. Um, it's kind of like the process of you got to learn the airplane um, as a, you fly as a first mech, first mechanic. And then after a period of time, um, if you're deemed worthy, then uh, you're allowed to get into the air crew syllabus. And then uh, you'd go through a series of uh, check rides um, to see if you're qualified. And then you would ultimately get um, designated as an air crewman. 
it's different now where it's more of a it's a formal school a formal pipeline but back when i was coming through it was a uh, really it depend on if the gunny thought you were worthy enough right. um and then uh you got put on skin so when i was at hmx um i actually got back on skins because i was flying the 53 alpha deltas they're all deltas at hmx and uh after about uh, seven months I was able to uh, complete aircrew school uh, down in Pensacola, Florida, the swimming portion, okay. and then uh, was able to take my check ride and actually got my wings as a crew chief. Ah, very cool. Now, uh, as a crew chief, and and I'm assuming you flew, uh, what was your responsibility once, the, like, uh, say, the president was coming on and those types of things? Like, what did you specifically do if you were on the flight? So it's got, there's kind of like different places in HMX. You have the green side and then the white side. So the green side is the stake side. You're flying uh, the 53s. And then also back then we had the 46s, the frogs. Um, so you're primarily uh, working the uh, White House press corps and flying supplies and other um, elements of a mission that um, is inside there. I, don't, I want to make sure I'm careful of what I'm saying and not yeah, no, getting too far down. It. Um, but uh, you're doing that on the green side. And then eventually... Um, cause you have to get your, your security, your security clearance has to go through. Once you're cleared, then you go over to the white side and then you have kind of still the same duties, but just on different airplanes or helicopters. Okay. So over in the cage, there was the H3s, the VH3Ds, and then the VH60s, the, the Blackhawks. Okay. So, um, primarily you're saying as a crew chief, you're responsible for the pre-flight of the aircraft, um, screening the logbooks, making sure that you're going around, checking all the, uh, the systems and the overall condition of the airplane to make sure that it's um, safe for flight and ready to fly. You go inside and maintenance control, you sign it off. Then the uh, maintenance controllers and all that will make sure the paperwork is all good. You'd go out. Um, the pilots would come out. They would walk around the airplane with you as well, just to make sure because two sets of eyes is better than one set of eyes. Cause if something happens, you know, an airplane, it's not like you can pull off to the side of a cloud. Um, you know, so you definitely want to make sure that everything is, um, tip top and uh crew chief is out front of the airplane uh, when it's starting to make sure that there's no um, fire or anything and uh, once the airplane's um started up and uh, the blades are turning and you're ready to roll you get back inside taxi out um, and then while you're flying your role is handling anything that's um, mechanical that you can impact while you're in flight you handle the uh any passengers the cargo um or if you had an external load um or if it was a gun run, whatever mission was for that um, that certain day, you would handle all those functions outside of actually flying the airplane. Wow, that's a big responsibility. I I served uh, with the Air Wing only one time. I was over uh, at uh, Second Mall. I'm sorry, Third Mall, and uh, I went into a couple of meetings, and the amount of uh, importance that is put on all of those record keeping making sure that you're doing your maintenance and all those types of things i had no idea uh up until that point and and we're talking i was a master sergeant at that point when i was in these meetings how important it really was because aircraft can get shut down so quickly uh if things aren't like if all your ducks aren't in a row oh yeah something as simple as missing a tool so if, if you can't find or anybody that's working, that's worked on that airplane is missing their screwdriver because tool accountability is, is huge. Um, if somebody's missing a tool, it could shut down the, the entire, um, flight schedule for that day until a thorough inspection is made of that airplane, um, to make sure that, it, uh, that 
that tool was not on the plane um, before it's able to launch. Yeah, and, and that's because uh, if it if the tool gets lodged in something or whatever, it correct. can cause the aircraft to go down. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, what What are some of the uh, important things that you learned while you were there at HMX One? Um, you know, as this time now, I was uh, as a crew chief, and now I was uh, promoted to sergeant um, in uh, the middle of 1990. So I'm at you know, four years in the Marine Corps. I was a sergeant, um, just a, a higher level of leadership, and then really seeing how the organization functioned and understanding my role. Uh, within that to make sure that it worked. I saw um, the the real value and importance of honor honor and integrity because um, right. a lot of times when you're dealing with um, operational um, organizations, there's there's not a lot of time to really make sure. So you're really counting on a person's word. So if somebody gave you the, their word that they did this thing or, or whatever it was, uh, you have to believe them. And if you do something that um, hurts your credibility or your integrity, like that has such long lasting impacts um, that people won't want to trust you or ever work with you again. Oh, so yeah, I, um, I've just seen um, so many people that um, found themselves either in a tight spot um, and made a decision or said a thing that might not have been 100% accurate um, where all they would have needed to do is either just been forthright and honest. You know, we kind of use a, f a phrase, you know, if you mess up, man up. Um, right. You know, we're all human. We're, nobody's perfect. And if you do something and if something isn't right, just own up to it. Take responsibility for it. Um, doesn't mean the consequences are going to go away, but you still keep your honor and your integrity intact. And that was something I uh, I took from that. A lot of things at HMX was it was kind of eye opening and I'm glad I went there as my second tour, not the first tour, because um, you definitely get treated like a king or a queen um, when you're out there with the presidential squadron. Because when you're going on trips, um, you're staying in embassy suites, the Omni, the Hilton, um, all these really uh, nicer places. You know, you're not staying in the barracks and you're not staying out in Tent City. Um, so you kind of get spoiled when you're out on the road. You have rental cars. So, you know, you and your crew would have a rental car when you're out in the fleet. Um, you're not getting a rental car. You're probably not even getting a duty van. You know, you're kind of walking. So it's, it's definitely something that, uh, gave you a greater appreciation, um, for how it, these trips and TADs could be. Cause you're on the road, um, a significant amount of time. I think my wife and I kind of told it up out of my four years, um, four full years at HMX, I was gone TAD or up at our alert facility in Anacostia up in DC, um, a little bit, a little bit more than two and a half years out of four wow. years. I was away from home. That's wild. Yep. I, bless your bless your wife, man. That's that's amazing that she, that she was able to do all that, and 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 you guys are still together. I mean, that's that's a testament to uh, both of you, and it, it's amazing. Oh, absolutely. That's why I, again, I I truly contribute a lot of my success, most of my success to her, because um, she she understood what needed to get done. So she would do um, get my uniform set or put together for me, or make sure they were at the cleaners. So that I could take care of what I needed to. Um, just, it's a great partnership. She's my, uh, she's my CEO. <laughs> As it should be. <laughs> All right. So after HMX, um, where did you go from there? So this was when I was making that transition from um, NCO to staff NCO. So okay. in uh, in 1994, 
when I left HMX, I was there from September of 90 to September of 94. I went uh, back out to California, but this time, um, oh no, we we're still up in uh, Irvine. So um, what I didn't know, because I didn't know how, it, how the whole process works, apparently in that transition time, I was selected for staff sergeant. And uh, okay. uh, there was no, I checked into my unit out in uh, California. I went to HMH 465, the war horses. Um, I checked in, I went to go see the master gunny, the maintenance chief. And uh, when I walked in, I'm talking to him, we're kind of reminiscing. We knew some of the same people, a whole lot different introduction then, because now I've been in the Marine Corps for, you know, six, seven years right. and uh, went out to uh, have this like a, an adult conversation with the maintenance chief. Well, he asked me if I got selected for staff sergeant and in in my head, I'm thinking, well, nobody called me. So I said, no, I, I didn't master guns. He's like, OK, because, you know, he thought I did because he saw the roster or the list. And, uh, you know, Oldenburg is not a very you know common name. Right. So I'm like, OK, well, I saw a friend of mine. And he comes up, he's like, hey, man, I heard you got selected, too. And I'm like, wait a second, what's going on? So back then, um, the way we found out if we ever got selected was um, when the Navy Times came out, the Marine Times, right. um, they usually had the whole list. So I remember going over to the little uh, quickie mart we had right there on Tustin. I grabbed a, uh, a soda and uh, the Navy Times and a pack of cigarettes. I was still smoking at the time and uh, <laughs> went out into my car and opened up. Um, and back then, I want to say there was 3,000 or 3,500 oh, wow. um, people that were getting selected as staff sergeant. So the list was like five or six pages of the Navy Times. Right. And uh, so I went through it. I'm looking because um, I know it was all listed in alphabetical, but I didn't want to I didn't want to just open up to the O's. And if I didn't see it, I think I'd be disappointed. And uh, <laughs> so I literally remember sitting in my car, smoking a cigarette, drinking a Coke, going through the whole list. Um, and then when I got to the O's, I saw my name. And then I was like, holy cow. And then I didn't know what the next step was. Um, so I went home and, you know, I was telling my wife and I was like, hey, I got selected. And she's like, great. When do we get paid? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, so uh, you know, then we found out that it was going to be, um, you know, your number comes up. Um, they promote so many per month. Right. And uh, it ended up being uh, I got promoted in August of uh, August of 95. Uh, while we were back over in Okinawa. Oh, okay. So another UDP to Oki. Correct. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, again, especially back then, um, it was typically for every uh, UDP unit, um, at least on the West Coast, um, 12 months in home port and then six months overseas, the normal rotation. And throughout that 12 months while you're back home, you're doing CACs, um, what we called it. I think it's ITX now, um, CACs, WTI which is a weapons tactical instructor course down in Yuma and then other um, workups in preparation. So out of the 12 months you're home, you probably have another two, two and a half of those months are doing uh, CACs, WTI, or some other type of pre-deployment training to get ready to go back overseas. We went back over in uh, 95, in uh, July of 95, and like I said, I wasn't getting promoted until August. This time was a little bit different where I was the assistant flight line NCUIC, which covered both day and night shifts. So it was a much oh, um, larger responsibility piece. And uh, because we were um, there for uh, not due to rotate down to the Philippines and team spirit for a couple months, um, I actually ended up getting a part time job at the E-Club um, while I was overseas to kind of 
bide my time when we were off work because there was, really wasn't much outside of the regular work schedule. Um, so I would work uh, two nights a week uh, and then I would usually work Saturdays um, over at the E-Club. Okay. And then uh, at the E-Club, what were you doing? You, uh, uh, serving drinks type of thing? or So I started out um, as a bartender. Um, okay. And then uh, especially it worked out where being a staff NCO, um, you know, even though you're in your off-duty hours, you know, you're still a Marine 24 hours a day. Absolutely. So it was able to help um, sh- help shape behaviors. Um, people weren't getting a lot of trouble when they knew that you were a staff, staff sergeant, yeah. um, especially a lot of the younger Marines. You know, they learned to listen up a little bit um, more. But I started out as uh, bartending, and then uh, I was also working uh, some nights as the assistant club manager, usually on Saturdays, and you'd help, you know, Make sure everything was all taken care of. If there's any issues, you kind of work through that and then make sure the building was locked up at the end of the night. Ah, very nice. All right. So it really worked out well for us because then, you know, especially back then, we at that time, my wife and I had four kids. So she was back home in California with the kids. Um, so I found it as a way to be able to, you know, make some money. So I'm not even touching my paycheck. All that could go to them. I was still able to have fun. Um, but I was actually making money. Very nice. Yeah, the, not everybody gets that that opportunity for sure. Correct. Yeah. But well, hey, um, at this point, um, how about we wrap up this part? Uh, we've already talked about some of the lost arts as we were just going through, um, but we do have some question and answers uh, session that we need to get to. Uh, so if you don't mind, we can transition to that. Absolutely. All right, I'll do that intro real quick. Questions, 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 answers, 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 answers. All right, that's my intro. Um, so um, let's say one of the questions, if I want to eventually be a sergeant major, what advice would you give to achieve that goal? So I, I get that question a lot, especially, you know, when I was still on active duty, because there is no direct roadmap. Um, I was always told, make yourself as Marine relevant as you can, regardless of your MOS. Um, be really technically proficient in that because there is no guarantee that you're going to pick up first sergeant or sergeant major. So you still want to be as technically proficient in your primary job, but also make sure that you understand the Marine Corps as a whole. Um, make sure that you're going out and doing that B-billet. That was one of those things that was really critical for me when I was coming up to make sure you're getting a B billet that's going to um, make you uh, stand out amongst your peers. Absolutely. Uh, I know for, for me, I, I was striving to be a first sergeant at one point in time and I uh, just wasn't in the cards, but thank, thank God that I continued down my uh, path in my MOS technically to make sure I'm proficient there uh, and was still able to get promoted uh, on the other side when I didn't pick up first sergeant. Well, and I tell you, most of the career advice I got was from, uh, master sergeants and master gunnies telling me about making sure I stay relevant because there really was no guarantee. And like when I picked up first sergeant, um, it was an 18% selection rate for those in zone that picked up first sergeant. So you, you're thinking that's less than one out of five that are putting in for first sergeant are actually going to get it. And you're all quality, quality people. Um, I honestly never thought I was going to be a, uh, a first sergeant because I grew up outside of combat arms, primarily at least from my experience, most of the first sergeants and sergeant majors were all um, combat arms. You very rarely saw a um, 
a, a non-combat arms, non-drill instructor. So I know we'll talk the next time about my um, special duty assignment, but I was a recruiter and not a drill instructor. So I was, in my mind, I was thinking, I had two strikes against me. I was an aviation guy and a recruiter. You know, there's no way I'm going to get a diamond. Um, but I kept myself Marine relevant and focused, and I believe that was enough to get me selected. Oh, absolutely. And I will say, uh, from my interactions with you, you did a fine job, and I appreciate everything that you did for us. Well, I appreciate you. You were probably one of the ones that uh, I truly enjoyed. You know, you love everybody that you're working with, but uh, Andrew, you and I really got along well. You were one of those go-to people that um, I knew you were going to be successful no matter which path you went. And uh, I'm glad to see that you're uh, achieving your goals and getting ready to retire. Yeah, right around the corner. I'll be I'll be just like you very soon. Um, okay, let's let's hit one more question and then uh, and then we'll we'll call it a day and move on and we'll we'll readdress again in the next podcast. But uh, the next question is: uh, How do you deal with a boneheaded or stubborn boss, specifically if the boss feels disrespected? Well, I'll tell you, it was uh, I probably had. So as a first sergeant, I had three different COs um, or four different COs as a first sergeant. And uh, it was all in my head. I knew the job better than the incoming commander. But I had to remind myself I'm not the CEO or that's not my role. My job is to maintain my relevance so that that person trusts the advice that I'm giving them or the guidance that I'm giving them, um, that I'm not going to lead them astray. And then he'll. He'll, he or she will ultimately um, take the guidance in direction that I'm giving. Um, and it's not as simple. Everybody's got their roles and responsibilities. Um, you, as the first sergeant or the sergeant major or, or whoever in an advisor role as a senior enlisted leader, you know, you need to make sure that you're maintaining um, the expectations of the organization by following the rules, but also maintaining your relevance with that commander so that they trust your guidance. Now, that doesn't mean um, you give in to them and you're just a yes person. Um, that's not it at all. But find a way to make yourself relevant. And they'll, they'll be able to pick that up pretty quick that, you know, you're in this collectively as a team. Um, if they're not, and I can honestly say that out of all my career, I never had one that didn't come along um, or get into a, uh, I would say my way of thinking, but my way of thinking, they, uh, you would then you would have to rely on others in the organization to help you um, get that person to uh, make some changes. Yeah, everybody see. wants to be successful. You know, a lot of times it's it's un it's uh, it's an unbalanced paradigm between the uh, officers um, that have opportunity to lead and being in charge um, by the enlisted or staff and COs because you know you're constantly in that leadership role but a lot of times some of the officers might not be in an oic role or a commander's role they might be in a staff role so they don't they might not have the same amount of experience or opportunities um and then it gets thrusted on them and then they feel like the whole weight of the world is on their shoulders and if they haven't learned how to trust and rely on someone else um that's it's pretty daunting for them absolutely does that make sense oh yes for sure I i would say also the uh as an enlisted Marine, it is my responsibility to advise and recommend. 
uh, and when I advise, when I recommend, that is based on policy, that's based on Marine Corps order, that's, that's based on those types of things and trying to make sure that we're maintaining specifically what the Marine Corps is asking. Uh, and a lot of times, it, you know, it does go against what the commander or the OIC or whoever may want, um, but it's our position as enlisted to advise them on this is what the policy says, this is what we should do. Uh, now, always there's always exceptions to rules, but, you know, that's our kind of our job on the enlisted side is to kind of keep everything honest and give them that honest feedback, uh, whether they want it or not. Uh, well, now, ultimately, it's up to them to make the decision, uh, but we try our best to, to point them in the right direction. Correct. And it's like, you know, I, you know, used to get frustrated if I said we should go left and they go right. I would get frustrated as why they're not following my guidance, but not realizing, you know, there's probably 15 other factors that they were getting from the other side, maybe from the battalion commander or the regimental commander or, right. or something. So then I've just learned, I just appreciate the opportunity to um, share my, my thoughts, opinions, um, or guidance, you know, right. whether they accept it or not, it's not that they don't trust me. Um, that's, they, they made that decision that way. And it, after a while I learned, I just would appreciate the opportunity to speak. Um, and then we go from there. And then whatever that final decision is, you own it. Um, if you have the opportunity to shape the decision and it doesn't go the way you want, it, you're still part of it. And then you own it. And then you have to breathe life into those decisions to make sure the organization is effective. Um, that's the follow through is, I think what really helps make an organization function. Cause I'll tell you a lot of times, and I'm sure you've had this, you know, dozens of times in your role. Um, well, you and the commander are behind closed doors. Um, it's a sometimes a very uncomfortable conversation. Uh, I wouldn't say a knockdown drag out fight, but there's a lot of uncomfortable conversations. But what at the end of the day or at the end of that discussion, whatever the decision is, you have to own it. And when you walk out the door, you're basically lockstep with the commander Absolutely. so that that organization function. Cause if, if the unit smells dissension, you know, or blood in the water, that's just going to cause chaos. But if they know that there's no bear or there's no difference or no break between the commander and the senior enlisted leader, um, they're going to follow. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's something that I've, I've uh, tried to keep, especially as like a senior enlisted is, uh, I, I may fight tooth and nail in an office behind closed doors about something. Uh, but once the uh, commander, the OIC, whatever makes that decision, then as soon as I walk out the door, that's what we're doing. And I'm going to make it the best thing since sliced bread. And everybody is going to see that it's, hey, I'm going to push this and this is a great idea. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you really have to or else, you know, once you again, once you start breeding this uh, dissent within an organization, it just falls apart. And uh, oh, yeah. when they see that there's that that team cohesion. Um, between the triad, you know, COXO, senior enlisted leader, um, there's there's a lot of power in that. Absolutely. Well, uh, Bill, thanks for uh, taking the time to visit with me, share your uh, veteran story to our audience. I know we're going to come back and uh, we're going to uh, talk more, uh, continuing on from Staff Sergeant all the way up to Sergeant Major, uh, which I am excited about to hear. Um, but before we uh, move on, is there is there anything else that uh, you would like to to say or whatever before we get out of here? Any shout outs that you want to give or anything of that nature? Really, I just appreciated the opportunity of having this trip down memory lane. I look forward to the second um, edition of this to get me into, you know, the real formidable years, 
you know, as a senior staff NCOs or when I became a sergeant major. Um, but it just, you've given me an opportunity to look back on my career, um, and smile and realize, you know, I've had the, the honor to just work with some of the most phenomenal people, um, not just in the Marine Corps, but in other services. And it's truly life's experience, um, that are, it's invaluable and I would, wouldn't trade it for the world. So uh, for those that are thinking about coming into the military, you know, do it with eyes wide open. It's not necessarily for everyone, but I'll tell you, it's a very rewarding career. And for those that are in, if you feel like you're not making a difference, I assure you, you're making a difference each and every day on those. And they'll, it'll come back to you tenfold. Um, sometimes even after you're out, somebody will reach back up to you and say, you know what? You were the one that count, or I could count on that day for that thing. And I just want to thank you. And um, those are the things that I really look at now and go, at least I feel like I made a difference. That's awesome. I, yeah, that, those are great words of wisdom right there. All right. Well, with that, uh, this brings us to the conclusion of this week's podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, Bill to give us the rest of his veteran story and discuss more of those lost arts. Thanks again to Bill for telling us his veteran story and giving us words of wisdom. Uh, there's been some great discussions, and I want to thank my listeners for taking out the time of your hectic schedule to join us this week. Tune in next week. Uh, when we discuss more of Bill's career and uh, life lessons that he has uh, and get into more of those lost arts. Stay motivated and change your socks. <laughs>